0: This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter offer code VULTURE at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm Gazella Mami, Vulture's TV editor, and I'm here with TV columnist Margaret Lyons and TV critic Matt Zoller Seitz. How are you guys Hi, doing? <laughs> Hi. Hi. Matt, I know you you pulled an all-nighter, so thanks for <laughs> sticking with us today. <laughs> Today we're going to do a special Mad Men edition of the podcast. And, uh, what on earth for? Uh, well, I'm glad you asked, Matt. Sunday night was the biggest television event of maybe, I don't know, the, what would you guys say, the decade? The millennium? <laughs> <No>. <laughs>
2: Certainly of this week. Of yes. this
1: week, yes. <laughs> um, so we're going to dig deep on the series finale of Mad Men, and I think we're just going to dive right into it. We start the finale with Don racing a car, and by the end of it, he's at a retreat with Anna Draper's niece, Stephanie. We also see Peggy and Stan confess their love for one another, (laughs) and Joan start her own production company. And it all ends with Coca-Cola's famous hilltop ad from 1971, which some people, I guess, had predicted would be how the series would end.
2: Right. Although... (laughs) To be fair, Hobart of McCann has only been dangling Coca-Cola in front of Don since season one. Yeah. So, you know, it wasn't a gigantic shock that right. they used the cocaine. <laughs> I thought it was just going to be woven into the story, though. I didn't expect that it would be the last thing yeah, that
1: we Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I was, I was pretty surprised. How would you feel, Margaret?
0: I try really hard not to make predictions about Mad Men mm-hmm. just because it's such a losing game. And I basically avoid trying to consume other people's predictions just because then it sort of taints how you're approaching mm-hmm. any given episode. Yeah, I wasn't... It wasn't like a, what, oh my God, like this is so shocking, right? Like it wasn't like that kind of a finale for me, but you know, there were moments in it that if I don't know, had like a bingo card or had been forced to write a story,
1: making guesses, I probably wouldn't have guessed would be there. Yeah. Were you surprised in general by how much of an ending each character was given?
2: I wasn't really, uh, just because Matthew Weiner came to this show immediately after The Sopranos. The Sopranos had one of the, maybe the most famous ending in the history of television, one that's still argued about today. And that was was an ambiguous, arty, open-ended sort of finale. And I felt like he had to do something that was not that. Because if he does that, then it's just, oh, it's just The Sopranos ending. Mm -hmm. So I expected something more traditional, something with more of a sense of closure, And what I felt he gave us was something that split the difference between the two. Like it pays off all of these characters and their relationships in, uh, if not a completely satisfying way, your mileage may vary, then then certainly in a definitive way. But there's also a, a sense of rupture Mm -hmm. in the show like like this is the only ad that we've seen that is not directly connected to the narrative where we see people discussing things Mm -hmm. they're talking about what a campaign is going to be and then we see the ad or some other agency is working on a campaign and then we see the ad there's always a a direct interplay between the narrative and the ad this is not the case it's slow dolly in on don draper's face you hear the the bell go ding he Mm -hmm. smiles and then suddenly we get a solid minute of this coke commercial (laughs) which you know, as we know from checking the timeline, doesn't appear for almost another year, from that point in the story. So, like that, so we've got a little bit of sort of radicalism, uh, a departure from from the show's norm at the very end of the show, which I thought was cool.
0: Yeah, right. And also one of the first times, I think the first time since the premiere where it's a real ad, right? So it's mean,
1: true. So, so it was played in. The, remind us what was. So the, the premiere premier real doesn't play a premiere. commercial,
0: but the slogan "It's Toasted" is a real mm-hmm. um, Lucky Strike. Or I'm not sure if it's an actual lucky strike. It is an actual one from um, 1917. Right, so it's a but but that's like a real slogan, and for the rest of the ads that we see on the show, they're fictionalized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, or certainly the ones we see Sterling Cooper and Draper Price produce. Right, like so we see. There are there are other ads
2: that have been based on real ads, but they haven't been that That ad. ad. Right, right. So
0: and we also see them acknowledge, you know, for example, like the Volkswagen Lemon ad. Like they acknowledge occasional famous ads as existing within their world, but this is the first time that an actual genuine. Ad specimen has been
1: woven into the narrative as if it were created by our characters rather yes. than the real people who made them. right. Matt, you had mentioned in your recap how this ad felt felt a little different from the type of you know the the Don style that we usually get. yeah,
2: Don style is, and I and Matthew Weiner talked about this a little bit when I interviewed him a few weeks ago. He's ahead of the curve and and advertising took a turn towards the towards the meta for lack of a better word in the late 60s and early 70s. And a lot of Don's ads sort of verge on that. A lot of his ideas verge on that. He's very conscious of advertising as advertising. And the discussion of the Volkswagen ad early on, I guess in season one, is sort of a harbinger of of the type of work that's gonna come. It's selling itself as an ad in addition to selling Volkswagen. And I feel like that's very much Mm -hmm. Don's wheelhouse. And, And the emotions that his work is able to summon comes from a very cynical understanding of what advertising is and how it works. But this ad is different. I feel like this ad is, uh, you know, we've all seen this Coke ad. This Coke ad is a ray of sunshine, you know, Mm -hmm. like you can't resist it, even though you know it's selling you uh, soda that rots your stomach and your teeth. You can't resist it. It's an earworm. You walk around singing it. And this idea of peace and harmony is so appealing. I mean, it was even more appealing at the time with the Vietnam War still going on and all these domestic riots and everything we've seen, much of which has been alluded to on, on Mad Men. But Even if you know, oh, it's just an ad for a soda, there's still something real about it. You know, it's the mm-hmm. real thing. It is the real thing. It's arrived at through false and manipulative and artificial means, but there is something authentic about it. And that, I think, makes it the perfect ending for Mad Men. I thought it was really brilliant that they ended with that. Not just that they mentioned the Coke ad, but that they made that the last thing that right. we saw. I thought that was great. And and it's the sort of thing where the first time you see it, you're not entirely sure how to take it. And mm-hmm. the the not entirely sure how to take it part of it is what makes it so great, I think.
1: Did it ring true to you that Don would have been the brains behind this ad.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I did a little research after after the episode ended, and there's an institute in Big Sur that is very similar to the one oh, that yeah. Don is staying at, and they had... And they had folk festivals, regular folk festivals there, including one in 1969 that featured performers from Woodstock. And this was made into a documentary film, which was released in 1971. So if Don was, in fact, staying at that <laughs> particular—I know we're getting into, like, this crazy detective work here. But if Don was staying at, if Don was staying at that particular uh, place, there would have been folk music in the air. People would have been talking about how Joan Baez was here last year and all of that. And then, of course, it's, you know, it's Northern California, which has a very sort of, you know, this is where new a- hippies become the new age in mm-hmm. the 70s, the me decade. I, you know, hate Ashbury. I mean, like, it's the center of so much of the counterculture. And he's he's absorbing that. He resisted at first, and then he's absorbing it. And then on top of all that, if you look at the ad, you see this uh, blonde hippie chick in, pig, mm-hmm. in pigtails tied with red ribbon, which is exactly like that woman behind the desk who tells him that he's stranded. And on top of that... Here we go. You know, (laughs) I did my homework, and now I'm going to share it with you. Um, That Coca-Cola ad was was created by an executive from McCann Erickson in January of 1971 when he was stranded at Dublin Airport en route to see the music team, which was in London. When he was stranded at the Dublin Airport, he saw people walking around, killing time, and drinking Coke. And that's when the germ of this idea hatched. When he got there, the musicians, the songwriters... He told them about what had happened and said, do we have any music? Can we do anything with this? And they pulled an old piece of music they'd been working on for the year before, and that's what eventually became the Coke ad. It was a radio ad first, and then it became a television ad. So the timeline works, the cultural circumstances work, the geography, the general vibe of Northern California works. Everything about it says Don created this ad. So this is not a case of the, you know, Tony got shot in the diner sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, the obvious answer is the correct one here, truly. But that said, then we come to the question of what does that ad mean in context of the show and how are we supposed to feel about it? And that's where I think it gets tricky.
0: One of the things that we talk about a lot is that basically the pitches that become the ads are what people are saying about themselves. Yeah. And so I think the lyrics for the song, right, mm-hmm. actually match up pretty evenly with Leonard's confession in, um, in that mm-hmm. group therapy scene. And he talks about not knowing how to give and receive Right, and also being in the refrigerator, which PS is just a sunny delight commercial. Right, <laughs> I, agree. It I is. Like that's just. I love that. Don is the purple thing. I think drink you're, right. I, I delight think delight you're right. Like
2: six months from now, as you said, this is a mayonnaise <laughs> right Right, but Dawn. so we
0: have this idea that like it's difficult to know how to give and exchange love, and to know that you'd ever done it right, or and to even
2: recognize to, it. to know that that's mm-hmm. what's
0: happening. And I like Leonard uses the term of you don't know what they're giving you, or they've been giving it to you the whole time, and you didn't even realize. Mm-hmm. Right, and so to have. Someone else acknowledged that they have that same anxiety that Don has because we've heard Don say in a very, very similar terms that exact thing in um, in season six in the flood,
1: mm. where he talks
0: about not not really loving his kids when they were first born and not knowing what right. that was going to be like until they got older and he he got to know them better. But I wonder now how much how true that remains. Mm. Like I think Don has mixed feelings about his children. I know he loves them, but I think the kind of overwhelming love he was describing at the time
1: is it's, maybe a put on. Right.
0: Um, But I think Don wants to be comforted by the idea that he does know how to give and receive love, the real thing. And so here's this ad where it tells you this is what it is. You don't have to worry about it. This is what it means to give and receive love. It's this, right? Like, this is how you show it. This is how you, like, accept it. And this is—and anyone who tells you it's false is lying. We're telling you the truth.
2: And also this idea of, you know, the, the, the John Lennon song, you know, whatever gets you through the night. is is a pretty good motto for a lot of the thinking about human development on this show. And by that I mean there's a lot of making fun of the counterculture and it starts with the beatniks in season one, it continues through the hippies and then we see a glimpse of the kind of the me decade, new age kind of uh, vibe that's gonna supplant that. And that's one of the few cases where I feel like the show is truly sitting on judgment and being condescending towards certain aspects of American history. But at the same time, it allows for authentic human emotion. And the first example of that is in season one's Babylon when he goes to the coffee shop with uh, his bohemian girlfriend, Midge, and her boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of ridiculous non-art Being displayed in that coffee shop, including a woman talking about having having a dream where she had sex with Odell Castro, and And then she takes her top off. Right. Yes, and right. Yes, (laughs) and uh, and then there's a guy like a guy with a heavy Russian accent reading wedding announcements from the New York Times and that kind of stuff. But then at the end of the episode, a trio gets up and performs a three part harmony version of Babylon, and Don shuts up, and everybody in the place shuts up. And what I take away from that is the vast majority of what's going on in this is silly. It is created by posers, but there's still a chance that the real thing can happen. And you see this time and time again throughout the show where there is a lot of silliness, a lot of triviality, a lot of fakery, but you always have to be on the lookout for something real. you know. And that's why I buy that ending.
0: I guess I just... The idea that there's something real about Coca-Cola is so hilarious to me. And I say this like, I mean... You know, I'm going to baptize my children in Diet Coke. Like, I'm not, like, against <laughs> <laughs> You're not anti-Cola. Like soda, but the idea that there's anything real about it is comical. There's nothing sure. real, right?
1: Right. There's so, like something comical about it. I
0: mean, in terms of Babylon, I think that's one of just a handful of episodes where the closing music actually occurs also in the episode, where it's not, a, like, a hard cut to the closing song. So that song, it's the sort of It actually fades the,
2: out, and then that's the, the first episode that rolls credits with no music, which is interesting.
0: Is that the one where Joan is standing on the yeah, street she, with the Roger birdcage? gives her the birdcage yeah, yeah. and um, Roger
2: <laughs> lights a cigarette
0: oh that's the street <laughs> noise episode that I've I'm watched way, of, I've <laughs> watched this recently oh, and I, I'm, oh, ash- yeah. <laughs> I'm ashamed to say no then I'm thinking of oh I'm thinking of um, early in the morning right where we have Father Gill playing a Peter Paul and Mary song yes and then that's segueing into the actual version of that song right um, in terms of moments of realness I felt like that is a real. Striking moment. I guess maybe I have like a more cynical read, although I hate to categorize it that way because yeah. I don't feel cynical about Mad Men. Like I love Mad Men and it's brought you know joy and intrigue to my life. But the idea that somehow there's like a true belief in human happiness behind this ad is garbage.
1: Oh, the point I don't of this ad that. is not
0: to create happiness, nor like in actual like meat space society mm-hmm. or in the context of the show. The point of an ad, the point of any ad, is to sell a product. So I think when Don is at that coffee house in season one. You know, and somebody even says to him, like, how do you sleep at night? He's like, on a bed made of money, right? And, like, he's very impervious to these ideas of – that there's virtue in art and somehow, like, a lack of virtue in consumerism. He's just not – it's just not something that bothers him. It's not something he thinks about. Except when when confronted with the idea that, you know, you work in an office where a department is called creative, but it doesn't matter what they create. What matters is that it sells something. I think Don has this romantic idea sometimes about the virtue of advertising, and then he feels a deep conflict about it when Peggy picks up on that, and she gets excited, and she wants to make something of lasting value. As a commercial?
1: That was an earlier episode this This season, season, where she says she wants to create something of lasting value, and he kind of keeps pushing her to, to say something more, to be like, to say... You know, but is that all there is? Is that really all you want kind of a thing? But it feels like we end the series with him kind of doing that exact thing. Well, see,
2: here's where i got to part company with you about this Coke ad. Because I, and, and i got to say, boy, do I love that we're discussing this the way people discuss the end of The Sopranos. You know, <laughs> that tells me it's a great ending that you can sit here and talk about it to this degree. But I don't think it's the Coke ad itself that is the source of the authenticity. I think the Coke ad is incidental. I think what's authentic is the feelings that you feel when you watch that ad. And they're incidental to the sale of Coke. I don't know if that even makes sense, you know? But that's what I mean when I bring up that song, Whatever Gets You Through the Night. Like, it doesn't matter. You know, it's like people have certain rituals that they have to psych themselves up. I have a lot of actor friends who all have different ways that they prepare for something. And some of them may seem, to somebody who's not an actor, silly. But, you know, whether you are a person who goes in and just... uh, has memorized the lines and does it or you're a person who decides you can't play a cab driver without being a cab driver for six months it doesn't matter mm-hmm. it doesn't matter like and nobody should sit in judgment of what another person's process is
0: right does that hug feel honest
2: does that hug feel on Don's hug yeah no 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 when yeah. he's,
0: when they're at the retreat and they, you confront a person and you look at them and you're supposed to show them how they make you feel oh and that, that was my favorite and moment they show people hugging and, yeah. and the session leader says does that hug feel honest and then that woman looks at Don and just it shoves, shoves him. him. I love that. That, that was so right. funny. Well, what was interesting and to me was that Don, that was, Don, powerful that was that, incredibly yeah. powerful. But well, was,
2: she senses the hostility mm-hmm. and resentment in
0: him But what, what was weird was Don
1: did not, we didn't he get to see what Don was. Because he was so... Caught up in looking at whatever everyone else was he's doing on the and feeling like he's going to be judged for whatever he does. Well, right. we saw
0: everyone else in like a moment of, so we
1: saw people embracing, we saw people in
0: this sort of weird like mirror hand holding kind of thing. Don didn't follow the prompt, right? He didn't actually show that woman how she made him feel right. unless what he was trying to communicate was alienated mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. not part of something, right? Detached, I guess, unmoored. Right. So what happened was, you know, she had this really strong, really clear for me, hilarious, like, mm-hmm. moment of real, like, bell-ringing truth, right? Like, there was no right. um, artifice to that interaction. Mm-hmm. That
2: that shove was the real thing.
0: Oh, yeah. It <laughs> was the realest thing about the episode. It was. But <laughs> then Don, you know, we if he responded, we didn't see it, but I'm inclined to think he didn't.
2: Yeah, I don't think so. We, we cut away, like, the point's been made.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So we're going to take a little break to hear a message from our sponsors at Squarespace.
2: Let's talk about the hug when we come back. Can we do that? All right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. From the shove to the hug. Yeah. After the break, we'll talk about the hug. But first, a message from our sponsors at Squarespace. This episode of the Vulture TV podcast
0: is brought to you by Squarespace. If you've been hesitant or nervous about building your online brand or identity, Squarespace is a great way to get a simple, powerful, beautiful start to your online presence. They offer 24-7 support via live chat and email. And for only $8 a month, you get a free domain if you buy Squarespace for the year. Squarespace offers responsive design, so your website looks great on any device. If you've been holding off on an e-commerce store, Squarespace is a great way to get started. Start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code VULTURE to get 10% off and to show
1: your support for the VULTURE TV podcast. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. We have a clip now of Leonard, the guy at the rehab, who kind of moves Don to hug him. And here's what he says right before that happens.
2: I had a dream. I was on a a shelf in the refrigerator. Someone closes the door and the light goes off. And I know everybody's out there eating. And then they open the door. And you see them smiling, and they're happy to see you. But maybe they don't look right at you, and maybe they don't pick you. Then the door closes again. The light goes off.
1: Let's talk about the hug, guys.
2: That's one of my favorite moments in the entire run of the show. It's great. And, and one, of the re- one of the things I like about it is, and, and this is the case with so much of Mad Men, um, they prepared for that. They've been preparing for that moment for seven seasons. And I say this because I've been going back and watching old episodes of Mad Men <laughs> to up my callback game, as it <laughs> were. Like, and there's scene after scene after scene where somebody is distraught, emotional, bereft, whatever, in front of Don. And Don tells them, Stop. Yeah. Get a hold of yourself here. Have a drink. And if they don't want a drink, he basically commands them to take a drink. It's like whatever it takes to numb it, to push it down, to get rid of it, to get it out of his face. He's uncomfortable with that. And he's and, you know, the the right guard pitch in season one, he's speculating what do women want? And he finally, to his credit, allows that to be an open ended, unanswered question. But his first answer is a Gary Cooper, strong, silent type, which, of course, is who he wants to be. Well, the first answer is being. Roger
0: saying, who cares? Right.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm talking about the pitch meeting. But oh. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like astronauts and cowboys. Right. Like that's who that's the kind of guy that he models himself after. Yeah. And and this is the first this is the first time I've seen Don voluntarily give love and compassion to somebody who's in that situation without hesitating without you know, he sits there. He watches that close up. It's a, a minute long. I timed it that a minute long without a cut is from Don's point of view, if you look at the position of the chairs, he's staring at that guy's face yeah. as he talks about his refrigerator nightmare. <laughs> and then he stands up, and behind his, the, over his shoulder is a painting of an open flower, and, it all, and all, it's sort of abstracted, so it looks all, almost like a sunburst. And then Don walks over to him and embraces him and cries with him, which mm-hmm. is the most unDon Draper-like thing I think maybe I've seen yeah. from him. Like and he, I don't think he's faking that.
1: It's like he couldn't believe there's someone who's just like him.
2: <laughs> well, that, I mean, he obviously, clearly he sees him himself yeah. in that guy's story and you know that idea of not recognizing love somebody spoke to him and uh that scene spoke to me it really spoke to me and like to me that was almost like in addition to all the other layers in which i think it's great it also to me represents the relationship between the viewer and the television show that they love like don is mm-hmm. watching this other person tell a story that the details are different from his own story, mm-hmm. but it touches him and he embraces it, you know, like in the way that we embrace a show like Mad Men. I, I know think... that sounds corny, but this, <laughs> is a, this is a corny freaking episode.
0: It's a pretty corny episode. Yeah. Um, yeah. I did, in terms of the sort of impact of the hug, but also how much sort of prelude there was to it, I think the idea of touch is like a major point of the show throughout the series where a lot of instances that I think maybe people with modern attitudes about comfort would be inclined to hug someone, the show is not big on hugs. There's not a lot of hugging on the show, period. Even among people who are spouses. You know, Mm -hmm. there's very little...
2: um, Children, they shake hands with kids and stuff. Children,
0: I mean, you know, when when Sally pulls Jean onto her lap, it's very rare to see that. You know, when you think of how often you carry your kid to bed or you sit on the couch with them or you know i was just hanging out with my siblings and my sister sat on my lap we're in our 30s like it's very (laughs) right like it's normal to have like a level of like ordinary physical contact you know even between peggy and don like in the suitcase right the big physical moment there is is a hand on top of a hand Mm -hmm. right which Um, is even though they were asleep on a couch together and like with Peggy, you know, passed out and, and Don asleep in her lap. But that wasn't the meaningful touch. The meaningful touch is this glancing thing. Or the most meaningful touch between Henry and Betty is when he touches her pregnant stomach in um, mm-hmm. uh, my old Kentucky home.
2: Oh, that's right. Right. So
0: we have, like, these, these weird moments where touch takes on this, like, very big thing that, that it had touch been more, um, I don't know, socialized at the time or for these characters in particular. I can't speak about, like, how often other people were hugging at that point. Um, But had touch been, like, a slightly different thing, I think the hug would have had a little bit less of a, like, such a big impact. I also think there have been several instances this season alone not between Don and other characters but just among all the characters where it seems like they should hug. So after for example like after Peggy tells Stan about the baby she placed for adoption, I I watched that scene and I wondered if there was a take where they did hug. Mm-hmm. Because they're standing face to face and they're very close to each other and we've had this moment of tremendous intimacy they don't hug and that's okay I mean it's a fine choice but they, they don't or when Sally is sitting next to Henry Francis and he's weeping you
1: almost
2: yeah yeah right? yeah that's like, something where expects, now you would expect does, it. You, what does
1: she do does she put her hand she, on his back or sort of like I think she, like, if we see her actually like do it like she's
2: uncertain if this right. is the appropriate thing she doesn't to do know. And, which at that time she would not be certain
0: right and you know there's no wrong way to express a feeling like you kind of be into hugs or not into hugs. That's not a value judgment but there have been like a lot of sort of that that feeling of the the hug we didn't see and this like ghost hug of the whole season <laughs> where you're just like someone's like hug the shit out of each other you guys like life's hard enough. Hug <laughs> right? it out! Right? But you, you kind of I mean even for me like when, when, when Trudy and Pete get back together right? You're just like are you guys gonna yeah. Like, really embrace? <laughs> like, right. what's right? And we want that, for me at least. I mean, I just always want all characters to kiss, basically. But, like, <laughs> like you kind of want to see these real moments and of like.
2: Charlton Heston and Dr. Zayas, for example.
0: I don't know. Opposites attract.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk a little about Steggy? Sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, how did you guys feel about Stan and Peggy finally? So, <laughs> while I enjoy the two of them and I
0: like the idea of them as a couple and I think that's a fun like fan service ending for them I found the mechanics of it to be really strange yeah I can see them as a
1: couple but the way it happened didn't necessarily ring true it just didn't feel Mad
0: men to me and I guess that's you know mm-hmm. sort of Axiomatically false because it was on Mad Men. This, is yeah, Mad but I know,
2: it felt there was a touch of there was like verging on Nora Ephron mm-hmm. quality to it. Like Look, it was. just I a love sort of Nora Ephron. Little... This is
1: not a value judgment. but, no, but these are no. very different. Right? Yeah, it was. It him was him leaving a kind her of a... on the phone. Right, and, and I all thought those little touches. Yeah, I, I think think, mean, I loved it though. It was really fun. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I guess for me, I, I, you know, Peggy's somebody who knows herself pretty well, and I think she knows what her deal is, and I think having her come to this, like, what. Do like the it was like the end of Clueless when she's like yeah. I love Josh right like it was like for her <laughs> to have that, that realization and, like and that. so yeah you know, to yeah. have that moment in that way didn't really feel true to me I also that was the part I wish had actually not been so articulated right so the mm-hmm. moment where she says you're always there and then you're here and it's that's the more that's the point where I wish Stan had just showed up at the door and they had just kind of kissed because I think yeah. the longer she went on and was like I guess I do love you it was like no I get it <laughs> like that part I didn't love so we've been talking a lot about how the series like mirrors other episodes within it. And I think sort of the suitcase winds up being the crux of like when the mirroring starts to happen. And so, because it's the end, it winds up being right around. A lot of the stuff is like right around the suitcase. So there's a lot of stuff in this episode. That's like Waldorf stories, which is the one before. Right. So in terms of Don's like abject Mm. drunkenness and how like sweaty and messy and, fucked up he is, that's straight out of Waldorf Stories. Which and, one is
1: Waldorf's Waldorf?
0: Waldorf Stories is the one where he wins um, a Cleo and he gets mm-hmm. annihilated. He gives that life serial presentation drunk out of his mind. He goes home with one person and wakes up the next morning with another woman. It's actually two mornings later. He also misses picking mm-hmm. up Bobby and Jean. He was supposed to pick them up. and He's like it, I'm supposed to pick them up on Sunday. And he's like it is Sunday, right? So that's like another instance. We have a callback to that in this episode of when's the last time you even saw them, right? Like you're right. not their custodial parent and you're not really worthy of being that. So we see that's also the episode where Peggy and Stan are holed up in a hotel room working on cough drop pitches. And Stan has been like when we meet Stan like he's a real dick like Stan's like irritating Mm -hmm. and like harassy, and he keeps calling like Peggy like ugly and fat and stupid and whatever and he wants to read Playboy and be liberated and so Peggy kind of calls him out and she's like let's get liberated you know and she Mm -hmm. like takes her dress off and and Stan is she sort of calls this buff and then they wind up sitting there naked and she's fine she's like okay you know cough drops taste like medicine it shouldn't be hard to convince people they're medicine and Stan is just paralyzed (laughs) doesn't know what to do And, like, we see them have, like, that's, like, winds up being kind of a turning point in their relationship. Mm -hmm. But even when um, Jimmy's, like, harassing Joan, you know, Stan moons them in that episode. Like, Stan is not, when Peggy's like, you're always right, it's like, uh, (laughs) no. But I think that's why I'm convinced that Don comes back because when Stan says to her, you know, he does this, he always comes back. And Peggy immediately says, you're always right." right. It's like, okay, that is what happens. Well,
2: and also she tells Don flat out, come home, and she says it twice. Sure. And, and she's the person he's most likely to listen to. So, you know, right. Yeah, I believe it.
0: Look, they're very cute together. Right. They're very cute. Very cute. I that guess. It makes
2: sense. And also she doesn't have to choose between work and love. Right. Because exactly. he's right there. You know, he's like, you know, probably refilling her coffee.
0: Yeah. Also, I think when he says, I'm happy with my job. Right. And she's when they're having that sort of that cute little. F- I, I found it very charming. He's he like, you better be really drunk because you need. Yeah, you're going to need an excuse. Um, That was like such a generous way to say, like, fuck you. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I think he loves that. That she's his boss.
2: Oh, and, she, and he's turned on by her creativity. He gets a charge from it. He always, we've always seen that from him, even when he was being yeah. a dick to her. Mm-hmm. He was excited being around her because she's so creative. And, and the, the, they plant this little seed there when he says, I'm happy basically doing what I'm doing. He doesn't have any ambitions to be the head of anything or anything like that. So that means that he's not in competition with her creatively, mm-hmm. which I is nice.
0: Did The one person we didn't see one last time was Ted Shaw. Oh, yeah. oh Ted. So, yeah. I, you know, I don't feel like any great loss. I feel like we understand his deal pretty clearly. And of all of the players who were, I think, important to the show and all their characters, the maybe the easiest to excise in some way. Just in terms of Peggy's love life, there was a time when, when he was a major mm-hmm. um, option there. And I guess I thought by the time he came back and was divorced that we had maybe... It might kind of... That, that could have made that. sense. Yeah. And I could have
1: seen them together and, and I would have been just as happy for her. Yeah. Right. How about Joan and and Richard? I was a little surprised by how quickly he decided to abandon her.
2: <laughs> well, he is a businessman.
1: I guess I, I wanted mean, you that, know,
2: not to be cynical, there's that word again but... Uh, I guess I
1: wanted that
0: love and basketball thing of like, I'd never ask you to choose, like, you would never have to, right? Yeah. But right. that's not what happened. Well, there was actually right. an
2: exchange sort of like that well, earlier she, right, in the episode. No, no, no,
0: that's what Joan says. Yeah, she was like, yeah. I would never ask you to choose. And then he's like, peace out right and the response you want (laughs) is the love and basketball response which Mm -hmm. is i would never ask you to right i guess given this as the ending i don't know what the point of him was at all yeah
1: right If, if only to show us that what joan prioritizes i guess like to make it really explicit that joan is not necessarily just looking for love she wants other things for her life whereas before we might have thought i don't know I mean it's it's not that it's not like that point needed to be made so strongly that yeah. you needed a a, a love a love interest to do that.
2: I don't know. I liked Richard, and and I was a little I I was a little surprised by the turn that it took, but in the end I wasn't really surprised because he is. You know, this is the 1960s, and he's, you know, probably what 15, 20 years older than her.
1: Yeah,
0: and you know, he just so he's wants about to be all the time. And... Right. I mean, well, he yeah. he's retired. been pretty upfront about it, right? He has so I think been. that feeling of I was surprised but not surprised, I think, is like the theme of this episode for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Because this is like a lot of Mad Men episodes has a real scorpion and the toad thing. Like you knew what I was when you saved me, right? right? Like, mm-hmm. of course I did this thing that I always do and I told you I would do it and because you care about me or you wish you could you thought I might behave differently yeah. this once but of course not of course I don't of course I can't like when Harry tries to get the three of them to go to lunch and Peggy's like what we've never had lunch yeah. like what are you in 11 talking years. about yeah so this but- idea of like you know I'm surprised by blank but then when I think about it, it's like well he does always kind of do that but now that I-, I think
1: about it yeah every sort of piece felt very in kind at a I mean, level. everyone yeah. seems very rigid in that sense because I feel like in real life you don't change maybe in fundamental ways. But, like, if you love someone or care about someone, then maybe you will kind of change. Well, it depends
2: on how much you love them. Right. So we, and we why don't really you love them. And what know. kind of
0: change is being asked of you. Right. Right? I so mean, we, I think we see – so, for example, Sally, I think having this idea that, that Henry Francis should remain the custodial parent for Bobby and Jean – you know, I think there was probably a point for Sally where – or the idea that she is comfortable taking on mothering capacities. Mm-hmm. We see her washing the dishes and showing Bobby how to make dinner and stuff. Um, you know, I don't think that's an obvious choice for her, right? That was a decision. I think there was something in her that changed. And the way that she deeply resented and didn't like her mom and and can see Betty very clearly for a lot of Betty's shortcomings, I think Sally
1: changed in the way that, you know, growing up sort of becomes – yeah, and a process of change dads will change a person more than anything, I think. So I think we've yeah. seen Sally, I mean, I think Sally changed. That said, you know when the show started, she was like 5 years old. I
0: actually think people basically don't change. <laughs> you mm-hmm. just got to find a matching set of baggage. I
2: think their essence remains the same but their behavior can change. Yeah. You know, which is sort of I think something the show has always been very astute about recognizing. And I just have to say, and I've said this in some of my writing about the show, but This show, I think, gets human psychology not just on a very deep level, but also on the level of a teacher. Like in the sense that it's explaining very complex concepts that you encounter when you study this stuff in plain language and dramatizing it through these fictional characters, which I think is really amazing. And one big part of that for me is showing how these characters are it's never an either or thing with any of these major characters. And, and, you know, the same character can be, be capable of great stupidity, greed, duplicity, they can have addiction problems, they can be very short sighted, whatever, but they can also turn around and be generous and kind and nice and loyal and faithful. Pete is, of course, the person I'm thinking about first and foremost. I don't think Pete is not Pete anymore. I think Pete is just a uh, tired of seeing his life in a shambles and it's funny too because pete has in many ways been the junior wannabe don draper all through the show like he's like the little the little dog in the warner brothers cartoon who falls around the big dog and goes what do you want to do spike you know
0: <laughs> oh i mean pete has like explicitly copied don as often as possible and that these things that made don cool made pete pitiful yes right and all, all these ways that like you know, the show reminds us over and over, like, only Don can Don. And and we see Harry fail, and we see Peggy kind of fail, and we see Sally struggle with that. Pete is the sort of the proof of concept there, that, like, Pete, you know, Pete's not a dummy, right? And he's not mm-hmm. even bad at his job. Like, Pete's mm-hmm. a competent person. He's good. Um, And he's, in a lot of ways, no worse a human being than Don, except, I guess, for the rape. That part's pretty bad. Yeah. But eventually Pete started how to learn, right? And I think that, like, well, Pete, yeah.
2: He did, and and that's the one major way in which it's a departure from from this pattern. In a way, Pete got the ending that a lot of people wanted for Don. And even in the lead-up to this finale, I heard there were a lot of people on Twitter who were saying to me, I think the ending is Don goes back and reforms and becomes a father to the children that he never really treated right because Betty is sick. And I thought, well, that's really nice. But, you know, and then, you know, maybe he becomes faithful. Maybe he helps build an orphanage. You know, like, why don't we just add to that? (laughs) Um, And and it's just unrealistic. But it's funny because we would have said the same thing was unrealistic about Pete. But Pete got the Don ending, what a lot of people wanted for Mm -hmm. Don. And I think it's believable. And and one of the key moments in his development is when he's out to dinner with his brother. And his brother says he has an opportunity to cheat on his wife. And Pete talks him out of it. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't talk him out of it because he thinks that, Adultery is inherently bad and anybody who does it is an irredeemably bad person who's going to go to hell and burn. <laughs> He's basically saying to his brother, look, I've been down that road and boy was it a bad ending yeah. for me and don't please don't do that to yourself. Which you is know? something
0: that Don says to Pete. Yeah. Oh, right. Right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Like Don has had that conversation with Pete. They've like had visited a brothel or something and Pete's all like, you know, JBF'd and Don's like, whatever, drop me off at my house. And Don kind of gives him a hard time. Pete's like, oh, how dare you judge me or whatever. And Don's like, I'm not judging you. But, like, I'll tell you what. Like, I've fucked up one marriage. I'm not going to do it again. Like, I know what I lost now. And and I'm going to be more careful, which is comical because we know that at that point Don was sleeping with Sylvia, I believe. Right. So it's not like Pete invented the idea of talking people out of adultery either. This is no, another sure. Don move. It just yeah, works right. better this time.
2: Well, but, you know, again, to return to this uh, this psychology idea, like what we're seeing in all of these examples that we're giving are examples of, of you know, this concept of self-states that it's not... This sort of almost fundamentalist Christian concept of who we are—that we're either darkness or light, we're this way or we're that way—it's like everybody's a bunch of different people simultaneously. You know, we're large and contain multitudes, to use that Whitman term. <laughs> it's true. It's right. corny I mean, It's corny, but it's true. Like a lot of the things we're talking about. We here. also
0: saw that with Roger when he goes over to Joan's house, and she's like, "Well, I guess the skirts are pretty short there, right?" Because we've no, we've seen Roger do exactly that with Jane, and then sure. he's like, "No, actually, it's Megan's mom, and Joan isn't like." what the hell she's like oh that's perfect yeah right there's a where right so roger we can imagine roger like this is a totally spectacular
2: what a mess she says (laughs)
0: yeah but but right it doesn't it's not out of character right even though there's an opposite choice that is also in character right that speaks to how well-defined these characters became over the course of the show. But even very early on, so many of these seeds were, like, really clearly articulated. And, and we knew a lot about character deals and, and the sort of idea of, like, well, what would happen if we put this person in this situation? Not that we know exactly, like, formulaically how they'd behave, but that we can know enough about them and about their strengths and weaknesses and insecurities that that their behavior in in different sort of fish-out-of-water moments seemed
1: relevant and interesting and also deeply true to them. Yes. Did you feel during Peggy's phone call with Don that he might be on the verge of committing suicide. I thought okay. about that. Yeah, because she says something like, "You shouldn't. Be you shouldn't alone be alone," right which is what you say to people who are about to commit suicide. Well, and
2: also he did that pitch. I guess it was at the beginning of season five or six when they're when he's at the beach with Megan. Six. I guess it's yeah.
0: Because mm-hmm. five starts with Zuby Zuby. That's zo. right.
2: So it's six, and there's that pitch where it's like a man's footprints walking. Yeah, he's walking into the, into ocean. the ocean in Hawaii, mm-hmm. and, and I Don's thought, like, "Isn't that boy. beautiful?"
0: And everyone's like dude, do you not see what (laughs) this is? Are
2: you okay? (laughs) Right. I
0: mean, we also, in season five, see Don doodling a new... I mean, ideas of suicide have been present in the show from the get-go. And actual suicides,
2: of course, too. Right, sure. I
0: mean, we start very early in season one um, with Adam's suicide. We have Lane's suicide. And, you know, at this point, there's like a degree to which Betty, her desire not to have any treatment could be perceived in some to some people perhaps as at least a passive suicide. I thought that Peggy thought that that was what was going to happen but I was like Mad Men like if this is how Mad Men ends like like, fuck you Mad Men. Right. Right. Exactly. I I would have felt that way too. I (laughs) I really would have. That would have been so beyond what I could have tolerated for this because however many like mixed emotions I have about certain mechanics of the episode one of the big reliefs is that It was a really clear statement that this show, perhaps more than any other, absolutely was able to stand up to the level of scrutiny and was worthy of the level of scrutiny that it it somehow engendered in in its fans. Because I think... You know, shows like Lost or Two Detective that are very, very different from Mad Men in in tremendous and important ways. But they wound up getting this kind of like deep, deep level of analysis and scrutiny. And ultimately, it turned out that was like a real overstatement of the creative process behind the Mm -hmm. shows. And I think for Mad Men, we've seen that it's not an overstatement and it's not. I mean, certainly we're analyzing it pretty deeply here. Well, yeah. But I think that that the way that things ended on the show was was a proof of, of how textured and how rich and and how detailed and specific the show really really was and there was no way for them to not no way they luckily like luckily for me at least kept up that sort of end of the bargain where it felt oh these years of of profound obsession (laughs) weren't for nothing
2: no they weren't and and um i feel like these people were real people, like as sort of highly artificially constructed as they were. <laughs> Don in particular. <clears throat> you know, Don is a walking metaphor for everyone else's problems. That's a, that's a pretty bold thing to do right at the start of a show, and much less to carry it through seven seasons. But I think they pulled it off. But this show, in a way, like is I, – I would be interested to see if it wasn't used as some kind of a psychotherapeutic tool, like as a mirror for people to look at and maybe try to come to terms with whatever their issues are because – There are a lot of metaphors. There are a lot of themes that are, you know, with a capital T and a lot of stories that sort of reflect other stories in a way that's supposed to make you tease out similarities and come to a conclusion or an epiphany. But that's what art is for. You know, that's what any story is for.
0: And that's probably why we have been able to talk about Mad Men so uh, thoroughly and passionately for the last couple of weeks. And I guess this is. Probably our last full Mad Men episode, though I'd be yeah. surprised if we never talked we'll about the show again. Some. Given how often we talk about <laughs> the Sopranos and the Simpsons and our other favorites, uh, yeah, probably Mad Men will be added to the list of shows that wind up popping up. But this is
1: our this is our last real Mad Men this episode. Is it guys? Yes,
2: absolutely.
1: It's been a good run. It has been. <laughs> I'm a little sad, but a little relieved.
2: Yes. Oh, stop.
1: <laughs> That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Please let us know what you think of the show. You'll find us on Twitter at Vulture, and you can email us any questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com. Our producer is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior producer is Laura Mayer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. I'm Gazella Amami, and you can catch me on Twitter at Gazellefant. I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at Charge. I'm
2: Matt Zoller Seitz. I'm on Twitter at Matt Zoller I'm okay, and you're okay, too.
1: <laughs> you can catch us all again here next week. Thanks for listening.